Hey, this is Justin, the audio producer for We Eat Art. Just a note before we start this week's interview, the sound for our guest was not optimal. There were technical difficulties on location, and we had to rely on a Skype feed. We did our best to clean it up in time, and it is certainly listenable, but it is not up to our normal standards. And we assure you, this is an anomaly. In general, we sound awesome. Also, I want to thank everyone who joined our Patreon campaign as donors. We're about to send you some exclusive content. Some of you are also getting some stickers. Some of you are getting your names on our site. One of you is even going to ask a question to one of our next guests. But you all have our eternal gratitude. To the rest of our listeners, please consider donating and supporting us. Go to patreon.com backslash weeatart and check out how you could be part of the family. I was out on Long Island for a clam bake on Saturday and all of us were debating sharing like a 15-foot sub but, of course, no one could agree on the meat to put in there, so we got individual subs. It's like an allegory of democracy. That's the compartmentalizing nature of the Internet these days. <laughs> right. This could be us, but you play in, you know. I had a meatball sub a couple hours ago. we got to stop talking about meatball subs and start talking about Melissa Brown. That's our segue. Now we're introducing the show. I'm John Mejias in New York. And I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. It's We Eat Art. A podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about... You're chasing something harder if it's based on a memory. The decision making is so much less arbitrary. It's an arbitrary moment that you're chasing, but it makes the decision so much more hardcore. You know whether it's working. And this week we've got Melissa Melissa Brown here. Talking about... Any moment in time can go in like an infinity of different ways, an infinity different outcomes. That's why I'm obsessed with gambling, because gambling is almost like a religion for people. It's like an opportunity for the universe to acknowledge you by like winning a thousand points on a Slot. Gambling is like a system that represents actually what's happening in reality or how people perceive reality. Melissa Brown is a painter. And a printmaker. Oh, right. Which is really why, an extra reason why I wanted to talk to her. And her prints don't look like prints though, which is another thing I like about her. And she does collage, but she manages to make all these things look like Melissa Brown. They do look similar. Like if you see them digitally, they meld together somewhat. Before we get too deep into that, Melissa Brown, where are you from? I was originally from Jersey, <laughs> your favorite place. <laughs> I was born there and left quickly, you know, so I grew up mostly in Philly. Oh, so okay. I'm from the general tri-state area, so I'm not far from home here sure. in Brooklyn. You just tell people you're from Brooklyn now? Well, I think once you pass 10 years, and now I'm like 15 years into Brooklyn, so, you know, that's a big chunk. I mean, it's most of my adult life, so I would say I'm from Brooklyn, but maybe you have to get to 20 years before you can actually make that claim. I think if you're a New Yorker your whole life, you'll never accept anyone. Yeah. So John's like that guy. No, I spent some time on Long Island, though. Since you spent some time on Long Island, you're not even a real New Yorker? You're not a native New Yorker? <laughs> my claim my New Yorkerness thanks to my parents who grew up in Spanish Harlem, and then when they had kids, were dying to go to the suburbs, so they raised us in the suburbs, and they were like, we hate the suburbs, and we all moved back to the city. <laughs> but I've lived in the city since 95. That's a good amount of time. Yeah. So, Melissa Brown, why do you make so many paintings? Why do I make so many paintings? Yeah, why do you keep doing that? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I ask myself that question all the time. Okay. We all do, right? Right. Yeah, I got yeah. an answer. What's yours? Uh, I would say that overall, I'm trying to cut out a piece of reality in the most accurate sense. 
for me, that means representing things in different ways. Most recently, I've been making paintings that like use a lot of different elements. Like for instance, I'm hiding my prints under resin and then putting scratch off ink over it. The idea behind that is there's part of the image that's unknown. It's like unseen potential. But they also involve airbrush, oil painting, print actually in them. I need all these different ways of representation to make a picture the way that I want it to seem or feel. Do you make them up as you go along or do you have like a vision and you pursue it? I have a vision that changes as I go along. You know, I'll make drawings or I'll have an idea and something will stick in my head and it's the ones that stick in your head for the longest that become painting. So how close, by the time it's done, is it to your original vision? It's pretty far off, actually. I don't know anyone that, that ends up like, this is it, exactly what was in my head. I mean, then it's not really <laughs> that fun if you're just, yeah. I mean, because I'm such a process-oriented person, I'm not the type of painter that smooches around in the studio for hours and then the painting emerges. I need to know, like, okay, I want this part to be, oh, I'm getting texted about an uh, animation job. <laughs> Doing a text interview simultaneously? <laughs> I'm yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I need to know at least, like, I want this part of the painting to be a lino cut. I want this part of the painting to be a screen print. I want this part to be oil painted. But beyond that, I feel like the more it changes from the original idea, the better, actually. So when you say reality, like, what for you is the reality? These paintings, let's just describe them a little. The paintings are kind of abstract, but they have references to, like, landscapes sometimes. Or, like, the space in them will be, like, you could replace the objects or the imaginary shapes in them with objects and the space would make sense. So it kind of looks like there's an abstract blob on the beach or like an abstract blob that turns into the sky or with like a piece of a tree. But then there's like a lot like heavy elements of abstract. So what's the slice of reality in that? Like when you're describing your process or like how you get an image that is comes out of the process, what does this slice of reality mean to you? The paintings that are, have evolved a lot since those paintings, but they're still spatially related. And, you know, one thing about representing reality is to me, it's about like space and color. Mm -hmm. The things that I remember about a particular moment are like a color relationship. You know, it's cloudy, it's like foggy, it's like I was on the beach and it was, the sky was this color and everything was reflected in this way. And that's generally how it begins. But by combining these new elements in them in prints, like, I also want to get at things at reality how like maybe you remember you're walking across the street and like in that moment like you could fall and get hit by a car or you have a great idea or you just make it across the street like the idea that that reality is multifaceted. So there's like what you can see and then layered onto that there's like what you're imagining and then how you feel and they're kind of trying to represent all that. Exactly and that's the type of reality. If I have any obsession about painting it's like okay how can I really represent this moment in time as accurately as possible, including all of my mental stuff and also the thinking process during the time that you're making it. So like, it takes like a week to make a, make a painting. Everything that happens in that week can also influence the outcome of it. But there's these like really bright, intense colors that look like almost cartoony. And there's also these layers of like earthy drab colors that are worked like, is that a conscious, like, it seems like these two palettes that are 
fighting. Different? I don't know if they're fighting. I just wonder if you think of them as as two different things, or you, or that's just not how you think of it. They're, they're definitely Melissa Brown colors. Like when I see some of your work, like oh, these are these are Melissa Brown colors. Is this natural or? Am I insulting you right now? No, no, that's not <laughs> insulting me. Actually, that's totally by design. I'm like sort of obsessed with color and pattern. If I had my way, I would just like put every bright color together in a pattern. And I've learned that like the only way to make color really work is to pick like one main color that you want this or two that you want to really sing in the painting. And then in order to make the rest of the painting work, I have to surround it by what I call like the dumbed down colors. So I pick like, you know, the chorus and then I dumb everything else down around it on purpose. So it's like about kind of lifting up that one color so that it, it's like a punch. Yeah. That's a little bit different than I guess like a one traditional way of talking about color and pattern, which is about like getting two or three colors next to each other that make a certain relationship. And it's kind of about that relationship. Does that seem like a different idea to you? Well, that's how you, you play into it too. I mean, like if you pick two main colors, and then you just mix them together in different amounts, it's doing the same thing, basically. You know, like in some ways you can make the whole painting out of two colors, including all the grays, you know, and then the two main colors. But yeah, I definitely think about all that. And I would say that color is, you know, sort of one of the most important things. Was there ever a time in your life when you had like a big swerve in your style or you just kind of always? Actually pretty recently. Yeah, how would you describe that? Can you? I mean, is it all just shapes? and? I would describe it in this. I recently also have added, you know, the things that I do is, like, I've been working with a lot of stop-motion animation because mm -hmm. the paintings that you're talking about are made with stencils, right? So the stencils are on pieces of acetate. And then I make animations out of, like, the scraps that I use to make the paintings. And, like, in the, making the animations, which are sort of like a drawing, I realized that I use a lot of different materials besides just paint. Like I could use my old prints, I could use objects, I could use all these different things. And in doing that, I realized, oh, and I can do the same thing in, in the painting. You know how like if you have a stove of things you're working on, the thing that is on the front burner is the main you know thing that you're cooking up, and then suddenly you move what's on the back burner to the front, and you have an epiphany about like what ingredient to add, you know, animation was like the back burner project pulled to the front burner and then it gave all this insight about what I should do in the paintings and, and that was sort of like making them closer to what I was doing in, in animation. And you have an animation, it's about a trip to Las Vegas or it's entitled? Yeah, yeah. And I don't get Las Vegas, I don't understand why it's fun or what's so thrilling about it and the animation is like first you're going there and then there's this music that sounds like weird, exciting, bad video game music, and then it's all your images are collaging and jumping around. And it just reminds me of, like, Las Vegas, and why is this fun? I'm actually really too cheap to gamble for real. I just love the environment of gambling. Like, I'm, like, at once, like, disgusted by it and fascinated going to okay. a casino. Like, I was actually just at Empire City in Yonkers. How much did you gamble? I basically just gambled to record sound for the animation. <laughs> so nerdy. So I know it's really dirty. I know, but I mean, I like the environment and how it's like this. You enter this weird trance, and like it's a video game. You're just basically paying to look at graphics for a certain amount of time and feel a certain way. Like feel like okay, my numbers might come up, or you know, you're just sort of paying for a sensation. It seems like 
kind of close to death. <laughs> there's no windows. But Francis Bacon said he didn't even gamble that much, but he liked to go to casinos because there's this human drama there. Like people are winning or they're losing and they're invested. I think it requires, if you're not gambling, an ability to sort of view life aesthetically rather than invest in these people one by one and be like, oh my God, that granny is just spending all her money. Like I go to Vegas and I always have the most fun in Vegas when I know I have to write a piece about going to Vegas afterwards or, or take pictures because then I'm detached and I'm just like seeing the drama. Like you, you see someone in a city, they could be doing anything. They could be thinking anything. You go to Vegas and 90% of the people you see, you know exactly why they're there. You know, like you're like, this is what this person looks like when they think they're going to have fun. Yeah, that's so sad. <laughs> it's sad. I mean, I don't get depressed by it because it's like people have fun in all sorts of ways. It is depressing to know that it's like a sort of voluntary path. It could be me just being a jerk. I think like yeah. me, Melissa, you're a monster with no human empathy uh, who just enjoys <laughs> the carnival of humanity. And John is a nice guy who's like, oh, but I want to bring that back around to your paintings because I feel like there's a, a level of just observing life to observe it in your paintings. There's not a lot of judgments being made about like, oh, you know what's really valuable is the ecosystem, or you know what's really great is flowers. You're just like, I was here. You know, it's very phenomenological. They're showing a moment in time without a judgment about it, just sort of, this is what life is made of, all these little slices. I appreciate that insight. I guess that's a pretty accurate read of my attitude about it. I don't see, uh, you know, if I'm representing like a moment in time, the best thing I can do is do it accurately without judgment. And the thing is, is like, there's no hierarchy to what moment in time you're going to represent. It's all good. It's like, it's more of like, you, you just like select a random, anything that you can remember accurately enough to make into a painting is worth making into a, you know, an image or stamping it out of time so that it's like still and cut out and you can look at it later. And like, you know, the thing that I like looking at old paintings, you know, that I can really recall the moment that I was basing it on is like, it's like a little bit of time travel. You know, at any moment in time is interesting as far as time travel. We're making one of those right now. It's going to be so right. spooky when there's that PBS documentary about you. <laughs> and you go, yeah, you remember old recordings of yourself? And, you know, and you'll be like, holy shit. I'll cringe at the sound of my voice in five years in the same right. way that I will when the podcast comes Before out. Before you went to Gamblers Anonymous. <laughs> but when I listen to the recording, I'll, I'll think, oh, that was such a balmy day, I remember the smell in the room, you know, like it really brings you back. It's like a way to really time travel. Is every painting that you make and print, you know at the moment that it's supposed to be bringing back? No, but I think I've recently, I've come to realize that the ones that I can are the best. Hmm. Or the ones that I like the best. Other people may feel differently about it, but, but when I look at them, like, I feel like they lack something as opposed to the ones where I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that attitude. Do you think what the good thing is that you somehow invested something in them that made them look better because it was attached to a certain thing? Or do you feel like the actual remembering that is just for you alone is what made them better? I think that you're chasing something harder if it's like based on a memory. That makes sense to me. The decision-making is so much less arbitrary. Like it's an arbitrary moment that you're chasing, but it makes the decision so much 
more hardcore. Yeah, you're like you don't go, oh, it's good enough. Like, right. No, chasing you know something. whether it's working. Yeah. The reason that tarot cards are like so compelling, even though the original deck that everybody looks at isn't like t- drawn that well. You mean the the weight? The Rider weight deck. Rider yeah. yeah. Is like clearly that woman was chasing such a specific image. And so her talent was like right on the edge of what she was capable of doing. She was like, this lion has to sit next to this comet and it has to be underneath this cup and you got to see that and it has to be this color. It was so specific that even though the drawings are kind of naive when you get real close to them, the whole thing is very compelling because it's like someone right on the edge of their talent. Yeah. If you're chasing a specific vision or a specific emotion, then you may get to good enough and you go, but no, it has to like remind me of being in that fucking parking lot where I fell on my head and got that. Exactly. And so you, you do an experiment more. You're trying different things. I think that people also can intuitively see that too. There's a difference between expert illustration and really nailing the sensation of in a drawing. Your drawings have that too. There's like such a huge difference when you like capture the flicker in someone's eyeball goes right through you the glance the emotion you know and it's just a a minute turn in a line that does it but it shows up and people get it it's it's communication basically like you're making a drawing and it either communicates the shape of a pupil that attaches to emotion or it doesn't or it's flat or it's an illustration it either carries something real or it doesn't do you have a connection with tarot cards? You got real happy when you mentioned yeah, tarot well, cards. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Actually, I'm more into the I Ching these days. I have no idea what that is. It's the Chinese Book of Changes. Yeah. Okay. It has lines. Okay, in G.I. Joe. Yeah, uh, you yeah. Know, like, uh, Storm Shadow. Storm Shadow had that. He had the trigrams <laughs> on his arm. I didn't want to right? admit that that was my frame of reference. Yeah, it was like a, a line, unbroken line, bro- line, unbroken line. Like a broken, unbroken line. He had a little tattoo on his arm. What was the hexagon? It was the one that alternates, like, broken and unbroken lines, like, evenly. But he had that tattooed on his arm. So, there you go, John. (laughs) It's true. Yeah, I think the difference between those two things is, like, the I Ching is more like you're internally telling yourself what to do, whereas tarot is telling you externally what to look out for. So, it's like a difference of how you approach it. But, like, I love all those fortune-telling systems because I feel like they're another way to sort of like test what reality is doing. Okay. I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question. Uh, you do not seem like a person, at least in your art and in the way you talk about it, who is driven by terrible angst and desires. Like you seem very easygoing in a certain way with a really kind of like life is good. Like life is interesting because it's life. Do you feel that way? It seems like you want to make art about, you know, life because it's life. Yeah, I guess that's true. You know, everyone has their fair share of angst. I wouldn't say that that's my driving force at all. Yeah, I mean, I feel like some artists, like, they'll be like, oh, I could try this experiment and try this and lay this on here and try to reproduce, like, what it felt to be, like, in this random parking lot in 8.30 in the morning. But I have to fucking deal with my (laughs) terrible dream about mermaids again. And so they've made their 900th (laughs) mermaid painting. Well, but that's the same thing, though, really. I don't know. I feel like... You don't seem to have an obsessiveness about some specific human. Or maybe it is. Maybe it's a fear of death. You're just like, you want to record all these things. I disagree. All right, go for it. You do these collages with lottery tickets that are used up. It's just thousands and thousands of losers of these tickets. 
teaching in the Bronx, I go to the deli, I see guys buying lottery tickets all day long, scratching them and just throwing them on the floor. So there's my opinion about it. It's just really sad. Where do you get all these lottery tickets from? All these losing tickets. Uh, I was collecting them mostly from eBay. You can buy them on eBay in packs. Losing tickets? Losing tickets as um, tax write-offs. So, like, let's say you win $500 in the lottery. <laughs> you can present the lottery commission with a pack of 1,000 losing tickets and say, you know, I've already invested this much. And so it reduces the amount of tax liability that you have for your winnings. So that's why people sell them on eBay. And I was, like, buying them in bricks for a while to use for collage. And now I'm using those same bricks in the animation. Shouldn't that be illegal, though? Because they're, like, they didn't actually buy those tickets? I mean, a lot of things should, <laughs> should be, be in illegal. art. Okay. <laughs> I got it. All right. Well, Especially about in my... the realm of taxes. <laughs> that's interesting. How do you feel about this? Because to me, it's incredibly sad. So you like, not care. <laughs> no, no. The obsession about it is, like, okay, yeah, I'm not, like, plagued by my dream about a walrus mermaid that's like, you know, like I want to have sex with or something. See, but that's Sean McCarthy right there. Like, <laughs> yeah. like I'm not that kind of guy. They exist, those artists, you know, and funny guys. I'm plagued by trying to figure out like what's actually really happening in reality. Okay. You know, like I obsess about things, the idea of like a multiverse or like the many worlds theory, the idea that like any moment in time can go in like an infinity of different ways an infinity different outcomes. And that's why I'm obsessed with gambling because I feel like gambling is almost like a religion for people. It's like an opportunity for the universe to acknowledge you by like winning a thousand points on a slot. So I feel like gambling is like a system that represents actually what's happening in reality or how people perceive reality. So that's my oh, obsession. That's interesting. Do you like like Philip K. Dick? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I like Philip K. Dick. The reason why I'm not picking whatever boring-ass moment in time to represent is because, like, I think that you can analyze this question with any any point, you know? Mm. It doesn't need to be the mermaid walrus rape dream, although it could be. <laughs> uh, you just introduced some themes, which I didn't even... <laughs> okay, the nature of reality. What was the first time you, like, doubted reality in your life? Were you like a little kid? Did it happen later? Oh, that, that's an interesting question. Maybe as a little kid, it's like being exposed to religion does that to you. I think that it started with using things like tarot cards and all that stuff. Like once you start getting into that, then you realize that that's also not true. Like even though I like tarot cards, I think that they're not really truthful. It's just like it's presenting a one possibility. It's not actual fortune telling. Mm. It's just one possible outcome and by even paying attention to it you make it more likely that that will happen some of your paintings and and stuff have like a form of like a mandala or like a ouija board or some other like these visual representations of supernatural systems is it just a visual reference or are they almost like an alternate fortune telling system or what i've designed a few different fortune telling systems on my own Oh, wow. Now we're in the weeds. All right. They're kind of based on existing systems. I think that all it really means, any fortune-telling system is just coming up with, here's my set of symbols, and here's what I do with them. That's all it is. Have you ever given your fortune to someone and them taken you very seriously? Yeah, yeah, I have. The more, like, humorous fortune-telling system that I designed is a deck of cards called the Tabloid Tarot, and it's got, like, words from supermarket tabloids on each of the 52 cards. So 
when you're playing cards, it forms potential future headlines in like supermarket tabloids, like new Pope adopts baby bump on Mars, for instance, might be totally uh, potential. (laughs) So, I mean, that's sort of like a humorous, have any of your systems worked? Like you, you managed to predict the future. I don't know if I predict the future, but it, that with all fortune-telling systems, they don't really predict the future. They just provide an insight. Like I did a performance last summer called Bagumancy. Uh It was based on this ancient system of fortune-telling called lithomancy, where you like assign sort of astrological symbols to different rocks, and then you throw them in a circle. It's a fortune-telling system for making decisions in war. It was used supposedly in like making strategy decisions in the Trojan War. And based on where the rocks fall relative to each other, you make a uh, like military strategy decision. So I did a performance where like I predicted the future of this new gallery using bagomancy, and instead of rocks, I just used the contents of my purse, like a lipstick. Did you pre-plan the contents? Yeah, yeah, I pre-plan. I mean, <laughs> okay. like, you have to pre-assign the symbols. But it doesn't okay. matter what they are. Like, the symbols are symbols, you know. So, like, when the uh, lipstick fell against the wine opener, I knew that a lot of feminine energy was going to be driving the Martian force forward, like the more aggressive male principle. So, and therefore, I could make a prediction based on that. In some, some of the things that I predicted came through, but... It's more of like, consider this in the scenario. It's like, consider this symbol. Consider the concept of female energy relative to this art fair. Like a piece of art is always kind of that, right? In a sense that it's like always King saying, well, have you thought about a Polish man riding a horse? You know, <laughs> and then a fortune telling his system is like, have you thought about when the crane perches on the mountain? and the sun rises over the plum tree, really. Have you thought about it? I mean, the way you were describing your earlier pieces is like a slice of time or reality, but I mean, do you imagine people being spurred to like certain thoughts? I mean, your pieces are very abstract. Yeah, if I have any hope for the viewer, it would be that the images would feel transporting in some way. One thing that I really enjoy is like entering someone else's mind's eye and just experiencing like someone else's view of things. So that would be sort of my goal for someone else viewing the paintings. You know, like I, I truly believe that the more personal you get, the more universal you become. On some level, like the symbols that I might use in my paintings would have maybe not the exact same set of thought process that I had when I made the paintings, but they're open-ended enough that you could look at it and sort of have this experience where you feel like, wow, I had this when I was looking in the rearview mirror about my past that I could like recreate that experience for someone else. Like if you have a dream and you say, I had a dream I was on the beach, then nobody cares, even though they can all relate to that. You know, they all been on the beach. But if you say, I had a dream and this llama was licking my ear and it wouldn't stop. And then I was worried that I liked it. And then there was a pickle on my other ear. And I was like, which one's the llama? Which one's the pickle? No one can relate to that. But at the same time, they relate to how obscure that is, like to how private that is. Yeah, I want the paintings to be as weird as possible in their own mundane way. <laughs> Do you ever make a painting and you're like, not weird enough? Yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> you take out your fortune teller to how can I make this weirder? Or you kind of like fuck something up on purpose and then you're like, ah, I got a real problem to deal with. And that's, that's usually where something interesting comes out of it. Because you're like, it's too easy. Like someone else could have gotten here. So you got to create a whole new problem that you got to solve. It seems like a lot of your paintings, like the more recent ones, are less visions of a moment and more like a slice of an imaginary religion or an imaginary worldview. Like this object implies a whole culture or an internal culture that is off screen. Yeah, I mean, I like that reason. <laughs> when you see like a, a Tibetan mandala in a museum, you see that and you're like, well, this is an object, but at the other hand, it implies Sherpas and it implies these prayer flags and you're on a mountain and all this leather tents. And, you know, like it implies a whole culture that you can't see in this object. Let of these like try to imply like a world of color and a way of putting things together that's like from an alien planet, you know, like a different alternate system. Yeah. yeah. You, you had done these paintings, I believe they were based on Pellicent's yeah. Park. Yeah. Why even tell us that these are the Palisades? Because to me, I'm like, this could be anywhere. Well, in that case, you know, I was sort of interested in the escape from the metropolis. The Palisades is this totally surreal, strange landscape that's right across the river in New York City. And I like the idea that you could present some part of a very familiar close place as this totally insane psychedelic experience that you could just, you know, cross the DW Bridge and there it is. So by saying like, this is the Palisades, you're saying you see the Palisades, see a bunch of trees, and I see the Palisades and like, I see this. I'm interested in the idea in that something very familiar is also a very strange object. This bottle of milk could, in my mind, look like the walrus mermaid. It doesn't have to be a walrus mermaid. <laughs> coming back to this walrus mermaid. Well, no, Maybe you like, are obsessed no. with the walrus mermaid after all. I like the idea that there's like strangeness in everything, depending on like who's looking at it or what you're thinking when you're looking at it. Speaking of strangeness, you were talking about um, how one of your first introductions to like reality being strange was like religious experience. Like what was your early religious background like? Well, I mean, I came from a very religious family. In what way religious? Like they were all Zoroastrians? Church once a week, church every week. Like Christian experience. They were Protestant or they Catholic? Or... Since I'm Italian, I should technically be Catholic, but they were converted to Protestants mm -hmm. when they immigrated so... to the States. It's an odd decision. I just feel like at a young age, either you're going to totally fall into it or you're going to question it and say, what is really going on in reality? It's like, it, it begs that question immediately. It did for me anyway. You weren't buying it. Not exactly, no. How did your family react to that? That art oh. kid isn't buying it. <laughs> I don't know. It's the sort of thing that you spend your life figuring out your philosophy on that whole issue sure. on like you know what is actually going on in the world like I at this point feel like the shape of reality is not a line it's like some kind of geometric crystal you know oh, wow. that you know <laughs> the way we perceive time is not how it actually is that you can imagine it as like three-dimensional shape moving through space so it's four-dimensional yeah, four-dimensional, exactly. <laughs> Better put. Do you have, like, real concrete science fiction ideas that then be kind of like, oh, I'm going to make a painting about this? Do you think that way, or do you think more like a, there are visual metaphors? I think both. So is there an example of a painting that has, like, a real concrete sci-fi story behind it in your mind? Actually, one of my favorite 
themes for a painting that I've done a lot actually over the years is like a view through a rear view mirror. I've made a painting of this maybe about 10 years ago. I've made prints of it. I just recently made two more versions of it. You know, the theme behind that is that it's a scenario where everyone is looking at the past and the future at the same time. I recently heard a quote from Terence McKenna saying that that's how we perceive the future in general. Humanity perceives the future as if you're looking through the rearview mirror. So like everyone approaches the future while looking at the past. That's how you make decisions about the future. I'm really obsessed with that idea. Everyone experiences that, you know, and it's so true. It's a real metaphor for how everyone experiences life. You only make decisions about the future based on what's already happened. That applies to legislation. That applies to, your to romantic life. relationships. Yeah, <laughs> romantic Listen, baby, that wasn't me. Yeah. Was romantic relationships is like the number one where that applies. So that scenario, it happens all the time, and it's a real metaphor for you know, what's actually going on. For Melissa Brown, we're pulling her in many different directions. Zach loves painting, and I love printmaking. And at some point in this podcast, we have to discuss these, these things, these ginormous prints. Zach and I are playing a tennis match. We're, we're pulling you <laughs> two different ways. Where no, I, go I'm, ahead. Talk about prints. <laughs> I'm stealing her away okay. to talk about these ginormous prints and how you made them. A couple years back, I made these giant prints. One was like a giant version of one of those paper fortune tellers that you make on the playground. Yeah, I... Take a minute away from children. <laughs> I recently just found on the street a sexual one that was pretty amazing. I've taken those, sure. Um, so the one that I made, I printed with a steamroller. It's close to eight foot square. It's a woodcut. You printed it with a steamroller? Yeah. Meaning? The vehicle that you flatten the pavement with. How'd you get a steamroller? It's actually surprisingly easy. You only need a driver's license to rent them. <laughs> I had a residency at the Islip art museum carriage house which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore but it was a great residency where you could just use their garage as a studio and i rented a steamroller for a week they came with, with a flatbed truck and dropped off a steamroller handed me keys asked no questions and you're like now i'm driving a steamroller <laughs> now i'm driving a steamroller there's like an amazing little cartoon on the side of it of a stick figure man being pinched between the two sides as a warning like don't stand really close to it because, like, the way it moves as two independent blocks, you can get pinched and killed by them. Yeah. <laughs> you studied this picture for a while. I was just like, wow, <laughs> that, that resonates. So then I carved an image of it, inked it up, put paper on it, put a carpet pad over it, and then drove over it with the seam roller to print it. And I made the, the cootie catcher, and then I also made something called a, here's my real nerd coming out, hexa hexa flexagon, which is... <laughs> This tessellated pattern that was discovered in 1939 by bored mathematicians at Princeton that ripped off the sides of their loose leaf paper and like folded it into triangles and discovered that if you attach the sides together, it formed a little loop of infinity out of paper. Like a Mobius strip? Exactly. A Mobius strip of paper. So I was like course really fascinated by that and made a, a giant version of it that was 16 feet long. Wow. So you need a steamroller. I mean there are large presses that I've used but for something like that you actually really do need a steamroller because no press bed can go that length. The fun thing about printmaking is 
you're putting a lot of faith and imagination into it, and then at the end you get that big reveal that printmakers love. Yeah. So how was it after you rolled over the steam, steam and pulled that print? It was great. I mean, I worked on them afterwards, too, but yeah, it was like pulling back the 16-foot-long yeah. rug of a print was pretty uh, exciting. Right. Then you get to clean up afterwards, which is yeah. what I love about printmaking. Is that I know, you know, I know. You, someone, pr- you make a print for five minutes, and then you get to clean for an hour. I know. Someone recently said that printmakers just like to clean up, and that's kind of true. I, I hate cleaning up, though, actually. But I think that there's a real mentality difference between printmakers and painters in that, Definitely. like, I don't know. This is a total theory on my part, which you can feverishly argue against. But oh, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I think. <laughs> Printmakers are more creative out of limitations, whereas painters enjoy a certain open-endedness. Yes. I would rather, like, you know, have to beat myself out of a paper bag than have be a bummy outside of it. So does creating a problem for yourself that you can solve, like, always the first step, no matter what you're doing? Framing it as a problem-solving exercise and then just creating the problem quickly so that the rest of the job of making the work of art is solving that problem. In my case, I think that, it, again, it's like it's a way to distill exactly what you want because you're making a mark or an image through some other material or a technique. It forces you to analyze exactly what you want. And if you, if you can be impressive with those limitations, then it's extra impressive. Right. Here's me being that, that 90s post-hardcore kid as Ian Mackay would, would plug straight into his amp and see what he could do with that without any pedals. And I was like, he's a printmaker. Yeah, totally. You know? yeah. He wants to see what he can do with nothing and make it great. Right, and he did. right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's exactly the mentality that's different. Whereas when I first started painting, like, I would look at it and be like, oh my God, it could be anything. And it's like, horrible. Like, when you go to a diner and the menu is a million pages long, <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah. I think that the difference between, like, the, the you can do anything and the like problem solving, there's a really interesting interplay. Like I don't make sculpture anymore because I always felt like I was problem solving. I wanted to think that at the most I could create something that was just completely out of my head if I wanted to. And I always felt like I was problem solving with sculpture and I made a lot of things I liked and I felt like I could work that way. But in the end of the day, if I wanted a perfectly rendered human hand, that would require so much money and effort and blah, blah, blah in sculpture. And in painting, I could just do it. So it was kind of like I wanted the option to do both. And I can see how like everyone's reaction to art in a way is based on the problem solving idea because if you just wanted things, you would look at real life. You know, you just wanted a, th- a thing that was like a Grand Canyon. It's exactly like the Grand Canyon. Just go to the Grand Canyon. In art is almost accepting that you're gonna create the limitation of it's fake, it's art, it's two-dimensional. And so within that limit, how are we gonna make it real? But I can see how like different degrees of whatever the fuck I want versus look how I solved the problem. I made the Mona Lisa using only ketchup. I made the Mona Lisa using only colored dirt, which is what paint is. Those are both art, but they have different proportions of the different ways of working. Like I I think what's impressive about most art is that you did this using only that on a certain level because it's art otherwise it would just be the thing and the problem solving it's just an extra thing you know it's not the only thing but it's an extra thing that that makes it really fun when it's when it succeeds you can see the problem solving it's really you know like when you can see that the mona lisa is made only of chocolate chips 
not just that you know in your head that the person managed to do that. When you just know it intellectually, like, look, this is 1652 and they didn't even have fuchsia back then and he did this anyway, like that's not impressive. But when you can look at it and you can just see visually, it strikes you immediately and viscerally, like there's something that's possible that you didn't know was possible, which is always exciting. Well, it like transcends the material, basically. At that point, like if you've, if you've problem solved well, you know, realizing that, you know, like, I thought that was Mona Lisa, but it's really just a bunch of chocolate chips. You're transcending the material. Like, the, the human will to communicate has pushed through chocolate chips enough to make the Mona Lisa. When will overcomes, you know, problem-solved material on the right level, then it's art. Yeah, and if the, if the audience doesn't even understand the pain you went through for the problem-solving, <laughs> that's okay. There's ways to visually communicate that crawl. I think a lot of the most effective things are the ones, even if you don't understand the process, you just visually register like, that is not what I thought matchsticks could do, or whatever. It goes beyond. I'm wondering about how you show these cutie catcher things. They're not static. Well, I showed them as just flat, hmm. really. And then I made animations of them in motion. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, I, I actually tried to fold up one of the giant 16-foot prints, but, you know... Try, like, it didn't, didn't work out. Oh, well, you know, the paper just can't... At that scale, it doesn't work. It needs to be thin paper. Oh. So, I mean, and the thing that I liked about showing it flat is that, like, you know, you could watch the video and see it moving and then look at it flat on the wall and you have to do this mental puzzle to figure out how just by looking at it, how it fits together. So obviously, you're doing a lot of problem solving, and it seems like you're having a lot of fun. Do you ever start something and just be like, oh no, this isn't fun anymore, now it's just work. Does that ever happen? Well, I mean... Because you, you seem so happy-go-lucky so far about the whole thing. I'm getting jealous. I mean, I have my fair share of work. <laughs> the specter of the mermaid walrus hangs heavily over. <laughs> like art is work in, in order for anything to be serious like you have to work hard at it like and sometimes it's not fun but I also am a big believer in like I think that if there's true misery behind making something it comes through I am interested in having a certain amount of like enjoyment be a part of the process I mean, not just for like superficial reasons but I do I like enjoy looking at that you know I mean Painting, you know, in a lot of ways is about beauty. I mean, the paintings that I like are a lot about beauty. I mean, I certainly appreciate all different kinds of paintings, some that are about, like, horrific things, too, but ultimately using color is a lot about beauty, so I am interested in making things that are beautiful. Sure. I mean, maybe that sounds trite, but... (laughs) No! It's okay to want to be beautiful. I am personally only interested in beautiful and I'm offended by anything ugly because I think ugly is free (laughs) and we get enough of it already. Like to me, ugly is like, hey, we were at the zoo. Uh, Here's a house cat. And and in the next cage, there's another house cat. And over here in this cage, we have a house cat. And I'm like, I'm at the zoo, motherfucker. I want to see a lizard. I want to see a tiger. Yeah. Well, pop culture is horrific, well, I mean, you know. A lot of things are horrible. I just feel like, why why more horrible? You don't get more horrible than real life because real life looks bad and is bad. So, and art can only look <laughs> yeah. bad. Like, you're not even as horrible as real life. You're just, you just look like shit. Yeah, 
I kind of already know what the answer is going to be, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it out there anyway so you guys can shine on it. So when Otto Dix made all these things about after World War One about everybody coming back from the war all messed up and torn up, how, that's some of my favorite art. Me too. How, how was that beautiful, Melissa Brown? It is beautiful. Like, the painting of the card players, you know, with, like, severed limbs, one of my favorite Otto Dix paintings. Sure, that, like, too. You know, I would love to cover at some point. <laughs> it's still way more beautiful than the reality. Looking at that painting is a lot more beautiful and insightful than looking at, like, an actual vet with a stump. It conveys the message and an insight about it in a way that's different than the reality. That is so strange that you would say exactly that. I have a book that has, like, a bunch of Otto Dix paintings in it, and it has photos of, like, mangled World War One veterans. And my take was always that the photos of the mangled World War One veterans were so much more beautiful than the paintings. Really? Like, they were genuinely oh. had a grotesque, like, Joel Peter Witkin beauty about them. And they were so stark. To me, they said everything that Dix wanted to say without his crappy, tapered line. You're not a fan oh. of his painting? No. Oh. We'll have to agree to disagree, which we do yeah. sometimes. I have to say, I, I always admire political art. Like, I just recently saw the the Roger Brown show, and I would consider a lot of Otto Dix to be pretty political, and I admire political art for its balls, basically, <laughs> but I don't necessarily appreciate it as much as beauty in terms of, like, what I would want to live with or be around all the time. To me, like, I would live with those photos, which I think are political, but they're also beautiful in that this they're, like, creepily stark, but that's for my interview, not yours, I suppose. <laughs> I wanted to ask about, like, kind of talking about political, about these dollar pictures. Like, you did a bunch of dollars, and I assume that has something to do with printmaking, but also the lottery and chance, and I don't know. You did a bunch of them. Well, money is, like, another one of those things that I've, like, been a long time obsessed with because I feel like it's, like, this totally imaginary concept that everyone's complicit in. Like, it's a complete fallacy, it having any value. It's a story that we all buy into. And I feel like, you know, money is like value and how value gets assigned through perception is really fascinating and obviously has like a huge connection to art. Most recently I started doing these money portraits where I like hold half of a piece of currency over someone's face and then the bottom half is their face. So like the portrait on the money, like it's George Washington and then your chin. Right, exactly. And the thing that happens with that, you know, in terms of, like, infinite possible realities, is like, you know, you're holding George Washington in front of John, and, and suddenly it looks like Margaret Thatcher, or it looks like Cameron Diaz, or whatever. Like, some other creature emerges in this conjunction that's hilarious. This, like, momentary conjunction. It's like, a creature appears out of nowhere from your friend and the $20 bill. It's hilarious. I feel like it's evidence that there's like, you know, so many different versions of reality happening simultaneously and like, that's what these little money tricks That like represent. totally reminds me of that Philip K. Dick story, The Solar Lottery, where like the president was just determined by random lottery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a theme all over the place. Folks, we've been talking for about an hour. Thanks, Melissa. Excellent talkers <laughs> and question askers. I also feel a little bit psychoanalyzed by the interview. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Who knew? That was our hidden agenda. I think that the uh, walrus mermaid knew. See you later. See you later, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art. Check out our guest, Melissa Brown, who is currently at the Fountainhead Residency in Miami and will soon be announcing shows for this summer 2018. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at We Eat Art. Also, John has been working on the book about Puerto Rican revolutionaries in 1950 called The Puerto Rican War. It's entirely carved in wood. It tells of Puerto Rican revolutionaries tried to kill the president. Look for that in the coming months and weeks. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. You can help keep making episodes by donating to us on patreon.com backslash We Eat Art. We have goodies available for donors like stickers, zines, and exclusive episodes. Please consider helping us at patreon.com backslash We Eat Art, all one word. We Eat Art is produced by Paping and Mnemonic Recordings. Our sound producer, engineer, and editor is Justin Asher. With editing help this week from Colin Wamsgans. Yeah, we could like, uh, we could pretend like we're talking about something else. You know, like, I don't know, like a sandwich that we ate. <laughs> <laughs>